0: Good morning, so tomorrow as a nation we pause and and honor those who made the ultimate sacrifice in service uh, to this country and I know many of you um, in here this morning watching online um, as uh, I share with you as well have served uh, in the military and many of us have friends, uh, some have family members who served and never came back so we set aside tomorrow as a nation to remember them, to honor them, to pray for their families. Uh, And I'm sure that many of you, as I do, have a a certain way that you go about uh, doing what you do on Memorial Day. So um, I encourage you uh, to do that in thoughtful prayer, uh, especially for the families of those who are living without loved ones now and many still putting back together uh, their families after Uh, losing men and women overseas in the defense of our country and our values and I would challenge you this as well as men and women who profess to be followers of Jesus I have very little hope for our country apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ being lived out through his church here men and women surrendering to the call of Christ vocationally to go into the justice system, and into government and politics and law enforcement and education and all of these different domains and going there as men and women who are serious disciples of Jesus Christ filled by the Holy Spirit. So one of the best ways that we can honor those who made the ultimate sacrifice is to live our lives as citizens of this nation in a way uh, that would honor that sacrifice and would strengthen the fabric of the communities where we live. Uh, Let me say just a couple of other things real quick, just kind of by way of uh, church announcements or business before we jump back into Matthew chapter 6 and work through the passage uh, in the Sermon on the Mount that Tori read for us just a minute ago. Next Sunday, and you'll get notified this week to remind you, but next Sunday we're having a Cash for Camp Sunday where we're going to encourage you to bring loads and loads and loads of cash. And all the cash that's given in the service is going to go directly to support students and children in camp and retreat kinds of environments this summer, our kiddos that are disconnecting and going and focusing on their relationship with God and with one another. Um, Our active adults gave a good portion this last week uh, toward that, and we want to encourage all of you to be part of that this next Sunday. And we don't want to limit you, right? Like if you just don't do cash, no matter how hard you try, that's okay right? There's a little link on our website when you, un, when you go to giving and you scroll down that actually says cash for camp. So you can give online, you can give by text, just by putting camp and the amount, I think, I don't know what it is actually, but it'll say that on the website, right? So they'll let you know. So that's coming next Sunday. Also, this is our last Sunday for our mask-only section. We are retiring that, hopefully, to the ash heap of history, After this Sunday, Uh, you are still free to wear a mask, though. Right? If you still feel comfortable in a in a mask, wear your mask. If you feel like you need to, wear it. Sit wherever. Uh, We still have our rows a little more spaced out than they were pre pandemic, but this will be our last Sunday uh, for mask only section. Now, up until this point of chapter six in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has taken us on this ride. Where ultimately he is saying this over and over, that underneath all of our actions, good and bad, is the truth about our hearts. Underneath all of our actions, good and bad, is the truth about our hearts. And Jesus has been trying to say, the God you thought you knew was all obsessed and concerned with external behaviors. And appearances and posture. But I tell you, God as he truly is, is after your heart. Because righteous behavior, righteous living, transformed values always follow a transformed heart. Always flow from a heart that has been changed. And Jesus sets us up to know how desperately we need him... Right, We can't just modify our behavior to look like the behavior in the Sermon on the Mount when he starts with the Beatitudes and he says, Hey, if you're grieving, if you're poor in spirit, if you're persecuted, if you're pushed to the outside, if you're marginalized, you're actually blessed. You're actually positioned to receive the favor of God despite how things look. And then he moves on and he says, hey, you as my people are actually the salt and the light of the world. You're the ones that shine light into darkness. And then he rolls into this area of sin. And he says, behind all these sinful actions which you may or may not be able to control is ultimately the beating desire of your hearts. And only I can change hearts. And then last week we saw him say, hey, and even behind your perceivably good actions, your actions of righteous devotion, is ultimately this issue of your heart, of why you are doing them. Are you doing them to look good? Are you doing them because that's what people in your socioeconomic economic demographic do? They go to church, they give some, they show up here. Are you doing this to impress people? And Jesus challenged us to do everything that we do only to, For God and his glory and his goodness. Now, we come to a a portion in the Sermon on the Mount now that's going to push back on many of us hard this morning in one area or another. And I want you right now to just breathe deeply and don't worry about that. Because wherever it's making you uncomfortable, it will get its way down your road to everyone else. Right? Right? So relax there and let's open our hearts and lives to God and say, God, speak to me, mold me, shape me, convict me, change me, purify me. Let's go. Let's look at chapter 6 beginning in verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where malls and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where malls and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus begins his teaching here about our relationship to possessions and money, and ultimately he rolls into the heart and worry and other things. He begins with a pragmatic approach. He begins by making a pragmatic argument. He says, what good does it do you to store up endless amounts of things on earth Well, the very fact that you live in a created world order that has fallen has been affected by sin means that everything you store up and own is going to diminish right it's going ultimately to be destroyed everything after our hearts after which our hearts chase and we can accumulate accumulate um physically tangibly can be taken from us and will rust and steal. Any of you ever bought a house? And when you bought the house, maybe you got lucky and it was in fantastic condition. Fantastic condition. And then just a few short years in, right, stuff begins to peel, doesn't it? Things begin to sag and fade. Someone points out that you could use some new paint. You wake up on July morning and your air conditioning unit is not working. Or two of them are not working. This is the nature. I've shared with you guys the story of it one time being able to, to buy a truck that I really, really wanted and just pay cash for it, and I brought that truck home. This was obviously pre-children in our life. Um, but I was so thrilled. Like, I loved that truck. And it gave me, like, such a jolt to come out and look at it and just think how appropriate it was that it was mine. And get in it and go to work thinking how much better I was than everyone else around me. And I can distinctly remember coming out a few months into owning the truck going, ah, doesn't do it that much for me anymore, right? It doesn't take long. Jesus is making a pragmatic effort. He's saying, don't push your chips in to stuff that will inevitably be lost. But put your value in eternal things. Put your values where God calls you to put them. Treasures is simply what our hearts chase after or drift toward. You want to know what you value? What you value most is what your mind naturally drifts to. It's what you naturally think about. It's what it's easiest for you to spend money on. Treasure is what our hearts most deeply Value. And it's amazing here that Jesus doesn't begin with a theological argument, but a pragmatic one. He moves kind of fluidly throughout this passage, back and forth between theological arguments and practical or pragmatic ones, as he goes through here. Um, I'll just say this. What Jesus knows is that it, it lacks common sense to store up stuff in a world where everything decays, declines, and ultimately disappears. You remember the tragedy, the greatest tragedy ultimately of the 07 08 just crash of the housing sector and economic crash that we, uh, most of us in here, live through? Is that men and women actually took their lives during that because of the substantial losses that incurred to them? I mean, how unbelievably tragic that someone would say, Man, I have nothing left in the bank. Therefore, I am of no worth or value. They took their lives because they had pushed all their chips in to something that could be lost. And Jesus says, do not do it. Look at verse 21 because verse 21, if we hear it correctly, should land like a hammer on us. Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart Will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me put this in a practical way that most of us can understand. Parents, let me talk to those of you that are parents in the room. Did you ever have, or have you, some of you may have had this happen this week? Did you ever have your children break something or lose something or use something and not return it that you didn't particularly care about? Wasn't that big a deal to you? You have a moderate reaction, right? Man, son, would you just put that back? You know, if I cared about that, you would have to replace it with the money that I give you, right? But then also, you've had your kids destroy or lose or use and in some way mess up something that you did value, Right? Your reaction was somewhat different, was it not? Like sometimes you had to go back, if you're trying to godly, uh, be godly in your parenting, and apologize to the child. Say, I should not have taken off all of my clothes and screamed at you and then thrown you through the wall. Right? I just like that shirt that you wore and got stained. Where, where our treasure is, our heart goes. Right? Where our treasure is, our heart goes. And what's amazing is so many of us are still caught up in kind of this junior high and high school game, right? We don't need a new car, but we want one. It would make us look better when we pull into the parking lot around all these other newer cars. Sometimes I feel sad when I pull into a high school parking lot and look at the students' cars. You're like, where do these children's parents work? Right? We want to teach ours the the value of waiting by giving them wagons to drive when they start. Often we don't need a new home, we just feel like it's time to upgrade. Right? I mean, we've been in the one we're in now four or five years. It's amazing how much so many of our decisions and our financial choices are driven by what we believe others Are thinking about us because there is an inseparable connection between your heart and what you treasure there's an inseparable inseparable connection we're about to see directly between your heart and your money and only christ can set us free of this god invites us into the the beauty and the power and the wonder of his redemptive work on earth but he doesn't need anything from us He doesn't need anything from you, and he doesn't need anything from me. His glory, his power, his value, his movement is self-sustaining. He doesn't need your talent. He doesn't need your money. God's kingdom will continue to advance, friends. The church will continue to march on and march forward. It will not be slowed down by the apathy of his people, or by the forces of evil pushing in on it from the outside. And we're invited to be a part of it through our interactions with one another, through our commitment to living out the gospel, missional living in our neighborhoods and in our circles of influence, through ministry and service in and through the church and through financial giving and open-handed, generous living. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's go on just a little bit. Look at verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness. Basically, Jesus is metaphorically speaking in ways using light and darkness in the eyes that his first century Palestinian audience would have absolutely understood. He's basically saying to us that that healthy eyes provide light. Metaphorically, metaphorically what he's saying is when our hearts are healthy, when our hearts are healthy, then our values are properly aligned then our values are in line with what God says is of ultimate value and worth. But unhealthy eyes bring darkness. Metaphorically, they bring greed and envy. When our hearts aren't healthy. In the context of this passage, what Jesus is saying is that our hearts are muddled with greed and envy. We want more, and we want what other people have. How many of you honestly... Haven't gotten on social media at some point, watched some show, I'm getting to those of you that feel superior because you're not on social media, watched some show, read some magazine article, drove by some neighbor's house, and deep in the places that you wish weren't there thought, I wish I had what they have. Honestly? Which one of us in here would be completely free of that? Jesus is saying, Let that speak to you about the condition of your heart. And then in verse 24 he says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Basically Jesus is saying here that God has no greater competition for the affection of your heart than your money. God has no greater competition for the true affection of your heart than your money. It's amazing. This, this, this verse really is amazing. Because you, you would think, and what would be natural for Jesus to say, when he says you can't serve two masters, you're going to love one and hate the other, you're going to serve one and ignore the other, is to say you can't serve both God and Satan. You can't serve both good and evil. But what Jesus is saying here is Satan's not nearly the biggest obstacle to the affection of your heart for God. It's your money. It's your money. The greatest daily threat to your loyalty and worship of God certainly is not Satan and the forces of evil. It's the allure of money and all that money promises. All the potential security and status and value, and comfort that money holds out. That is what our hearts most wrestle with. And what's amazing is what you, what you treasure both reveals where your heart is, and it directs your heart. What you value reveals, in other words, what we do with our money, Jesus says, which is this, this big competition with God, For ownership and direction and guidance of our hearts, what we do with our money both reveals the truth about our hearts, the truth about where we are as disciples of Jesus, and it directs our hearts, right? I mean, have you ever had a cause or something, an organization you didn't care much about, they weren't on your radar, and then through certain circumstances you gave to them or you began giving to them? All of a sudden, it matters now. All of a sudden, you're invested. All of a sudden, there's a portion of your heart that's tied up in this. Your heart has no greater competition, I'm going to say it again, when it comes to your love and affection for Jesus than money. This this really is the reason that even here, even among our members as a local church, 40% of you who were members of Lost Mountain, Baptist Church, haven't given a dollar this entire year. That's stunning. It shakes me as a pastor. It grieves me. It unsettles me. It scares me that we have created such a fake culture of discipleship, such a meaningless version of membership in the local church that we would allow men and women to believe that we can be followers of Jesus and not honor him financially, live in consistent week in and week out, month in and month out, sinful disobedience. And we, we don't say anything about it. It's insane. It's sinful. But I'll tell you, it's not just here. Now, I will tell you, it's shifting and changing here with every membership class, with every new couple that comes into membership now. With every person that we baptize, as they go through membership class, they understand now coming in what it means to be a covenant member of a local church and of this church. They know when it comes to, to serving and using the gifts that God's given them in ministry, that that's expected and that's our job as staff to, to equip them and empower them to do that. They know that they're going to be expected to be in some sort of small group where they are relationally connected. In a way where they're known, challenged, encouraged. Right? Whether that's a Sunday school class, whether it's a a weekday small group, they know. They know they're gonna be expected to attend, attend regularly, and to be faithful, to guard and protect the unity and the mission of the church with all other members. And they absolutely know that they're going to be expected to be giving at a biblically faithful level because Jesus said, Where your treasure is, is really where your heart is. That money is the biggest competitor to being a fully devoted follower of Jesus. And we're no longer going to create spaces of low and no expectation. We will not contribute to distorted, warped, unbiblical views of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. I'm not going to bear that weight. And lead that cowardly. You know, the funny thing is, most of us feel like, really, that if we could make just a little more money, we'd be good. I mean, honestly, have you not felt that? Right? The amazing thing is that people that make $45,000 a year feel that way, and people that make $145,000 a year feel that way. You ever notice that as your salary increased, so did your stuff? Right? So did your ability to get new and better credit cards, new and better vehicles. It's amazing, I, there was a, a post from Babylon Bee, which is just a, a satirical uh, kind of, you know, fake news magazine that I, I love what they put out there on Instagram, and the headline was this with a picture of Tom Cruise, it says, Tom Cruise makes desperate plea to get people back to theaters. I'm down to my last 100 million, he says. <laughs> I know the poor guy is nervous. I know he's nervous. Jesus knows that where our treasure is, our heart is also. And he's speaking in hyperbole here in verse 24, as he often does. He's not saying that we will literally love one and hate the other. He's saying that when forced to choose in those moments between faithfulness and obedience and affection for God and to God and money, if our heart's really with our money, we're going to choose money our hearts really with God, we're going to choose God. There are all kinds of reasons why all of us who claim the name of Jesus could put forth to not be faithful financially. And I know you expect this kind of talk from me, right? So we're about to start putting some of these stories from you on video where we can hear from one another saying, man, we were in debt, we were struggling, and part of what we did was give our way out of that we decided that we would bring all of our financial life before God and be faithful. Because, friends, it is both a theological issue and a practical issue. It is a theological issue and a practical issue. Jesus is saying, if you're going to be my disciple, you're going to have to live with an unwavering commitment to kingdom values. If you're going to be a disciple, here's part of what it means. You live with an unwavering commitment to kingdom values. I will not be shaken. Listen to how a couple of other uh, New Testament men and scholars have thought about this teaching of Jesus so far. Craig Keener, who um, is, is teaching now, he's a New Testament scholar at Asbury University in Kentucky. Or Asbury Seminary, I'm sorry. Keener says, his words, Jesus' words, strike at the core of human selfishness challenging, now listen to this, challenging both the well-to-do who have possessions to guard and the poor who wish they could capture them. So uncomfortable are his words that among his professed followers today, it appears far more common to explain away his radical teachings here than to consider how to apply them. And the weight that I feel this morning is to challenge you to consider how to apply them to your lives. Paul Miner who was... Uh, he was a 19th century British ordained Anglican priest, poet, a hymn writer. In one of the hymns that he wrote, no, I'll say that. That's not who Paul he was. That's a, I'm going to read a quote at the end, a, a poem at the end, and that's who he was. Don't worry about Paul Monere. He doesn't matter that much. So listen to what, what he said. He does. I'm just short on time now. Listen to what he says. So insidious was Jesus' attack upon earthly treasures that he became, according to Kierkegaard, talking about Soren Kierkegaard, a far more terrible robber than those who assault travelers along a highway. Jesus assaulted the whole human race at the point where that race is most sensitive. It's desire for security and superiority. I feel like I'm, I'm shorting many he was he, He's passed away now. He died in 07, but anyway, he was a professor of uh, biblical theology at Yale Divinity School. So, there we go. Um, both what, what keener and many are expressing is the shock of jesus teaching if you and i are willing to take it seriously if we're willing to take it serious jesus is saying i can tell you all about where you are in relationship to me let's just sit down and look at your bank account let's look at what you treasure it's just that serious first timothy first timothy six ten says this for the love the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul, writing to Timothy about the believers in Ephesus, says this is so serious, this hunger and love for treasure and possessions ultimately rooted in love for money is so serious that people wandered away from the faith and brought into their lives all kind of destruction. One of the TV shows that Sharon and I like to watch from time to time is the first 48 and it just it chronicles the first 48 hours after a homicide and you'll see um, several cities just featured again and again and again where they've kind of um, set up shop there to walk with homicide uh, detectives and and local law enforcement officers as they deal with this Atlanta is one uh, Tulsa Oklahoma Dallas Texas some others but I was telling Sharon after watching a number of these I'm like look I want to give everyone I talk to a long life plan right Here's how to live a long time. Get home between 10 and 11 at night. If you're going to go to a bar, go with someone you trust. Don't overdrink and get home between 10 and 11. And don't get caught up in shady money deals. Do that and you're likely to live, apart from disease, a good long life, right? Because there's a common thread in all of these homicides. There's so many of them. And behind so many of them is money. It's amazing. What happens when you follow the money? Colossians 3, 1 and 2. I'm not going to read out loud, but just um, Paul pleads with us here to set our hearts on things that are above, things in heaven, values of the kingdom. You ever notice that when you drive, you drift toward what you're looking at? Have you ever noticed that? Anybody ever been distracted by something and notice you've got to jerk the wheel a little bit? Don't jerk too hard, right? Ease the wheel back over. Because you were staring at something, and, and subconsciously you were drifting toward where your focus was. Anybody ever been there? I mean, that happens. If you've ever walked in freshly, uh, a ground that's freshly covered in snow, and it's, it's, a, it's a nasty, cloudy day, if you'll notice when you walk in snow like that, if you stare at where you're going, if you stare down at the snow and at your feet, you'll walk the craziest sort of path. But if you can pick a point out ahead of you, a tree or a rock or some kind of landmark, and walk to it, it's amazing how straight a line you can walk through fresh powder. We go where our focus is. Jesus isn't just calling us to an unwavering commitment to kingdom values. He's also calling us to uncompromising trust in God and his goodness. Uncompromising trust in God and His goodness. Look at verse 25. Therefore. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't try to disconnect this business of worry and righteous living from what you do with your money and where your heart is. All right, I think all of us would agree, if we're uh, mentally stable this morning and of average intelligence, that most of our worry and our finances are pretty closely linked together. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry. Do not worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink. Or your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add one single hour to your life? Jesus is arguing here from lesser to greater. He's saying if these objects, which are lesser in his creation, the only people that ever argue with that are dog people sometimes, right? Animals are indeed lesser in God's creation than human beings. And Jesus is arguing lesser to greater. If these lesser aspects of God's creation are tenderly, faithfully taken care of by him, will he not do the same for you? Let me ask you, how, how are you doing with worry this morning? How are you doing? Scale of 1 to 10. 1 means like another financial collapse, you're sleeping through it. Doesn't make you any difference. 10, right? You need Xanax to check your email or, or turn on your bank app, right? How are you doing with worry this morning? And I know sometimes we can be like, it's easy for Jesus to say this, right? He walked on water. He multiplied loaves of bread. But he was also fully human. To distort that or dismiss that is to think and speak heretically about Jesus. He absolutely knew the temptation, the draw of anxiety and worry. But you'll notice in Jesus' teaching here that worry is a subtraction-only game. It doesn't add anything to your life except health problems. It will add health problems. But it is a subtraction-only game gain. And when Jesus is talking here about not worrying about what we eat, what we drink, our clothes, let's pull that into the 21st century. He's saying don't worry about how you're going to pay rent, how you're going to pay mortgage, how you're going to afford insurance, what you're going to do with medical bills, how you're going to send your kids to college, how you're going to bury your parents or other loved ones, what's going to happen with your business. He says don't worry about it. Engage your heart and your mind, and make a decision to trust God. Uncompromising trust in God and His goodness. And His goodness. He says, verse 30, skip down to verse 30. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will He not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. He says, for the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Disciples live with an uncompromising trust in God and God's goodness. Not just that he's able, but he's willing. Trusting that you are indeed his child, his delight. He looks on you in Christ with stars in his eyes. He loves you. He loves to watch you being you as he's created you. And I want to make trusting God tangible because we talk a lot about it. But trust is faith that leads to action. Trust is faith that leads to action. Trust is faith in action. That's what trust ultimately is. It's faith being lived out intentionally. And sometimes that's going to look reckless to the world. Sometimes it may look reckless to followers of Jesus around you who can't understand why you can have such a happy-go-lucky demeanor when so much is going on. But when your faith is in God, trust is how you show that. I choose not to worry. God will come through. God will take care of it. God will handle it. God will handle it even though I'm not sure about the purity of my motives. I'm going to give that to him as well and trust him. His power, His character, His goodness. He will come through. Now I want to give you this challenge because Jesus challenges us. He says, hey, um, how many of you, by worrying, can even add a single hour to your life in verse 27? Just try this out today, right? Go home, and I want you to worry about the amount of money in your bank account. That's one of like two or three assignments today. Go home this afternoon, have lunch, and worry. Take a nap. Get up from your nap, and I want you to worry until dinner about the money in your account. After dinner, I want you to keep worrying. I want you to cut it off around 9 or so because you need to rest. But then I want you to get online and see if you've worried more money into your account. And if you have, call me. (laughs) Right? It doesn't work. You may get to the end of the day and find out some more was subtracted. But I'm going to bet you will not have worried any more money into your account. Jesus then gets theological in 32 and 33. I just read 32. He said, man, pagans run after all this. He said, godless, unrighteous people who know neither God nor His truth and reject the idea of both, this is how they live. So don't live like practically like a pagan. Live like a disciple of mine. And he says in verse 33, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek after God himself and the things of God, the values of God. Seek to be part of what God is doing. And all of these other things will be given to you as well. All of these other things will be given to you as well. Parson says this, that lack of uncompromising trust in God is not only an affront to him, it is essentially pagan. God is calling us out of that life to believe he really does love us and will provide for us in every single way. Jesus at the end here shifts back again. He started with a pragmatic argument. He moves to the theological. He shifts to pragmatic again. And he says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Have we, can we not just say we have found that to be true? Each day has enough trouble of its own. So don't worry. Tomorrow's issues will be there tomorrow. And so will God. So where's where's your focus this morning? Where's your focus this morning? Worry, money, treasure, a focus on God and his kingdom. These things are all tied together. T.B. Pollock, who uh, I didn't reference his name, but who he was earlier, he was a 19th century ordained Anglican priest in the Church of England, was a a poet and hymn writer, wrote a hymn entitled, We Have Not Known Thee As We Ought. I want to read to you just a couple of lines from it. He said, We have not known thee as we ought, nor learned thy wisdom, grace, and power. The things of earth have filled our thought, And trifles of the passing of the passing hour. Lord, give us light, thy truth to see, and make us wise, make us wise in knowing thee. If there's no faith involved in the way that you're living now, church, there's no obedience in the way that you're living. So I want to do I want to give you a couple of very specific challenges. If you have your connection card, grab your connection card. Grab that, get it in front of you, and grab your pen. I want to say to to those of you that may be sitting in here this morning or watching online, and you know you're a member of Lost Mountain and you know that you're in that 40% who doesn't give anything at all. Man, I want to challenge you to get yourself unstuck and unclogged there spiritually. Whatever excuses you're using right now, they are invalid. And I want you to begin following God in this area of your life in obedience and trust Him on the back of your connection card, there's literally a little place in Next Steps where you can say, today I'm committing to start giving regularly. You need to do this. And if giving it at like a basic biblical level, a tie, the, the whole 10% threshold, if that's too scary for you, if that's too big a leap, start giving something, but do it intentionally and proportionally and consistently and faithfully. This is easy obedience here. <laughs> and if you want to flip it, Trust in God's goodness, right? Say, I can obey you with 90% by keeping 90% of what comes in. And if I'm too nervous about that, I'll obey you by keeping 95% of what comes in until I can obey you in living on 90%. And then I can actually begin seriously giving and obey you and live on 88%, 87%, wherever you are. There's There's no gray here. This is very clear, church. Followers of Jesus are financially faithful to God. And so I challenge you to repent of that, to ask for God's forgiveness and restoration, and to begin honoring him financially, trusting that all of your financial life begins to get better when you live in obedience to God. And I challenge everyone else, And maybe you're in that category, but you need this as well. If you didn't sign up last week, if you didn't write summer serve anywhere on your card, one of the greatest ways you combat worry in your life is give yourself to someone else in need. You start serving someone or something bigger and beyond you. And we're going to have multiple opportunities to do that this summer through summer serve teams. What you're not doing is you're not agreeing to a date. Dan Smith was great last week. He signed up on his card. He wrote summer serve, and then he wrote July will be better than June, right? So that's helpful, but we'll have all this stuff dated and laid out there and what the projects will be and where and and the times um, in about another week, and we'll put those out there and then allow uh, the teams to begin forming around those. So all you're saying when you write summer serve on your connection card somewhere or you type it in the chat box online is, I don't want to miss what God's going to be doing through this church, through us this summer. I want to get out there and give a little sweat and give it a little time and maybe give a little money and be part of what God's doing. I encourage you to make one of those commitments this morning and to remember what we sang just a few minutes ago, that all of his promises are yes and amen. I pray that we're not singing stuff we don't believe and that our confidence is his faithfulness. Let's stand and pray.